Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, we recall Randall Robinson, who died on March 24th, 2023, at the age of 81 years old. It was just last week on Sojourner Truth that I played a clip of Randall Robinson during a show focused on Haiti. Randall was the founder of TransAfrica. He led the organization from its founding in 1977 until 2001. During his tenure there, he led protests opposing the South Africa apartheid regime. Thousands were arrested during those protests, including notables such as Stevie Wonder. Many credit Randall Robinson for the U.S. shift of policy in South Africa, but as Randall would say, he did play a role, but so did thousands of people across the United States and across the world. Here is a clip from CBS on Randall Robinson speaking about his role in ending apartheid in South Africa and about a private moment with Nelson Mandela. Let's go to that clip now. Nelson Mandela was famous, but it wasn't always that way. And therein lies a story told tonight by Michelle Miller. In 1984, most Americans had never heard of Nelson Mandela. The South African government has not responded to our demands favorably. Political activist Randall Robinson was on a mission to change that. The strategy was to find ways to dramatize uh, the relationship between the West and the uh, South African apartheid system. We were the legs on which it was standing. Robinson staged a sit-in with Congressman Walter Fontroy and civil rights leader Mary Frances Berry at the South African Embassy in Washington, D.C. They told the ambassador that they would not leave until their demands were met. The first was the immediate release of Nelson Mandela from prison. The second demand was that all other black political prisoners uh, be released. And, and thirdly, that they began uh, immediately the dismantlement of the apartheid system. All three were jailed. That one act of civil disobedience led to a year of daily protests at the embassy where celebrities, members of Congress and citizens were also arrested. We put 5,000 people in jail at the embassy, uh, and that drove the headlines. Free South Africa! The movement pressured politicians to act. On this vote. And in 1986, Congress overrode President Reagan's veto and imposed trade sanctions against South Africa. U.S. businesses were forced to divest, costing the regime over $350 million that year alone. Four years later, Mandela was free. Nelson Mandela taking his first steps into a new South Africa. Robinson says Mandela's public persona was the same as his private one. He saw that firsthand when a hotel housekeeper accidentally walked into a meeting. The moment that she walked into the room, he stood up because a gentleman stands when a lady comes into the room. His sense of courtesy, it was genuine, 
it was a private moment, never to be seen or remarked publicly. It told me something about the man. A man whose respect for each individual taught us so much about dignity and justice for all. Michelle Miller, CBS News, Boston. Those were our news headlines. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And today we remember Randall Robinson, who died on March 24th at 81 years old. Uh, his wife, Hazel, reports that he died in a hospital in St. Kitts in the Caribbean, where he had been living for the past several years. He died in a hospital of aspiration pneumonia, according to an obituary in the Washington uh, Post. Uh, Randall Robinson grew up in the Jim Crow South, and he actually said that he didn't have any white classmates at all in his schooling until he got into Harvard Law School. Uh, and he began his activism. Uh, he is very well known for leading the protests um, on against uh, the apartheid regime in South Africa. Uh, they were held in, in Washington, D.C., and many notables were arrested uh, during the protests. Actually, about 5,000 people in all were arrested during those protests, including uh, the singer um, Stevie Wonder. Now, Nelson Mandela was released in 1990, as you know, and became uh, South Africa's first uh, black uh, president. But Randall Robinson, you would have thought he would have been at the inauguration, but he wasn't because in the style of Randall Robinson, he was involved in yet another protest. He went on a close to month long hunger strike uh, to protest um, the, the 1991 coup against President Aristide, again, U.S. backed, and also the thousands of Haitians that were fleeing Haiti, referred to as the boat people, and he was pushing for asylum for those refugees that were fleeing Haiti following the coup against President Aristide. And um, actually, Randall Robinson had to be hospitalized uh, during that uh, uh, hunger strike. Uh, Randall Robinson was born in uh, July 6, 1941. His mom was a homemaker, and his dad, a high school history teacher and a coach. Today, we are going to remember uh, Randall Robinson. And what we're going to do now, in fact, throughout the show, we are actually going to be playing you the voice of Randall Robinson. Um, the first clip you're going to hear, Randall Robinson talks about how too few of us in the world know what's going on. Uh, do people know who Toussaint Louverture uh, was? A, a, a lot about our history that's not known. Let us go to that clip now. And too many of us in the world know so little about what's at stake. I was in uh, Jamaica speaking to some high school students about uh, a year ago. 
I suppose there were about 200 high school students in the room. And I asked them um, how many of them had ever heard of uh, Toussaint Louverture. This is Jamaica. Jamaica is virtually next door to Haiti. Not one hand went up. And then I asked how many of them had ever heard of Snoop Dogg. <laughs> Every hand went up. Therein lies the problem. A people who have been stripped of the story of themselves cannot prosper, can scarcely survive at all. All righty. And there you heard uh, Randall Robinson. And today we are remembering him as he uh, passed away earlier uh, this month on March the 24th. We are now going to add these, by the way, um, this sound is very, very rare. Um, it's not, they're not speeches that are generally uh, known, and they focus on Randall Robinson speaking about Haiti. And let us now go to a clip from Randall Robinson about what you learn visiting other parts of the world. The reason when you visit other parts of the world, you see an Eiffel Tower, you recognize. You see the Colosseum in Rome, you recognize. You see all of these things you recognize because these are the things you are told about ad nauseum for the whole of your life. And this is what people do to make you remember how important you are to yourself. If you are the descendants of those who built those things. I grew up in Richmond, Virginia. All the folk in town used to say this phrase from here to Timbuktu. Nobody had a clue <laughs> about where it was. At Sankara University in Timbuktu in the 14th century, they were doing cataract surgery. A university built before the first university was constructed in Europe. In Spain, by the Moors. And I, as a child, knew about the Eiffel Tower, but knew nothing about that. I knew about Moses, but I didn't know about his wife, who was Ethiopian, Zipporah, and black. I knew about Solomon, but I didn't know about the queen of Sheba and her son, Menelik, who brought home to Aksum, you know, the Ark of the Covenant that is said to be in Ethiopia still today. I didn't know about the churches carved from stone in Ethiopia in the first centuries of Christianity. I knew about Cleopatra because they told me about Cleopatra because she was at the end of Egyptian greatness and was of Greek extraction. But we see presented to us 50 cent. 
What does this do? What does it do to our children? And there you heard uh, Randall Robinson breaking down what we are not taught in schools about Black history. And of course, the world lost Randall Robinson on March 24th. Uh, 2023. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. And we are playing some rare sound now of Randall Robinson uh, speaking. Uh, We are now going to go to hear more from Randall Robinson about why he did what he did for South Africa and also for Haiti. Let us go to that clip now. People used to say to me, um, why would you be on a hunger strike for Haiti? Uh, uh, You're not Haitian. Or why would you do what you're doing in South Africa? You're not South African. I would say, well, I am a South African. I'm a Haitian. I'm a Nigerian. I'm an African-American. I'm all of those things. I I, I really don't see the distinction uh, you know, uh, we're all bound up indissolubly together. Um, we, we can't win in one place if we're losing in another place. It's, it's all a common struggle. And we're in a place to, 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 to make a difference because we have the fortune, whether, what kind it is, is perhaps another matter, of living in the United States, the most powerful country on earth, and we're in a position to make a difference. That's how we won the South African struggle, by working with the ANC. But you see, we understood South Africa immediately because it was a white-black situation. So that resonated with us. We haven't read Haiti that way. We just think it's black people doing this to black people. That's not the case. But even if it were, uh, we we sometimes uh, operated as proxies by other people in different places. Uh, That doesn't mean that you uh, are going to stand down. It's all of interest to us. But the first thing you have to do is to know about it. And the problem is, we know too little, and it's, it's not our fault. And ignorance is a curable disease. <laughs> but, but, but you see, um, it's, 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 none of this is taught in American schools. No, and that's why we're in so much trouble in the, uh, in, in the world. Let me give you an example of this stunning immensity of the hypocrisy. Following World War II, the U.S. played a pivotal role in the establishment of the United Nations. Eleanor Roosevelt was a major spearhead with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And in the period following the war, we have seen passed by the world nations 26 major human rights conventions. The U.S. is a party to about six of them. We expected the world to comply with laws that we helped install, but we had no intention of complying with ourselves. And the whole reason we don't want to uh, be a party to the International Criminal Court because we believe under no circumstances 
should an American ever be brought before such a court. We recognize the jurisdiction of no human rights court in the world insofar as its reach to Americans is concerned. We do not believe in equal justice under law. We believe in a justice for them and a justice for us. The world sees that. And so the world often knows us better than Americans know themselves. And I think the point of all of this is that if I've learned nothing over the last uh, 40 years, is that nothing changes unless you make a great deal of clamor about changing it. And uh, I think a quiet nation is, uh, is a pliable, manipulatable nation. I believe in civil disobedience. I believe in all manner of noise <laughs> to make sure that the problems you're talking about get addressed. If the Tea Party teaches us nothing, it teaches us that. Uh, you, 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 quiet means you get, uh, you know, you get the shaft. And that's what's been happening. Saddest thing I, I know of uh, currently, contemporarily, is, is, the, is the quietness of our campuses. Um, you know, I, bring back berserkly. Yeah, the quietness of campuses. And uh, there you heard the sharp analysis of Randall Robinson and where he says, I am South African, I am uh, Haitian. And uh, basically he was describing himself as a global African even before the term was coined. I happen to agree with that analysis. And he talks about how uh, how much we don't know about Haiti, but also about civil disobedience and, and making noise. By the way, the reference to the Tea Party, uh, some of you listening may not know about the Tea Party. They were the precursors to the MAGA movement uh, headed by Donald Trump of, of today. And we also can see what's happening in our schools and on campuses where black history and <clears throat> history of people of color generally is under attack. Uh, so it's really important to pay very close attention to what Randall Robinson had to say. We're going to take a short station break now. And when we return, we will continue uh, to hear more from Randall Robinson. Stay with us. We'll be right back. After they took I From the bottomless pit But my hand was made strong By the hand of the Almighty We forward in this generation Triumphantly Won't you help to 
blessing These songs of freedom Cause all I ever have Redemption songs Redemption songs Emancipate yourselves from mental slavery None but ourselves can free our minds Have no fear for atomic energy Cause none of them can stop the time How long shall they kill our prophets While we stand aside and look Some say it's just a part of it We've got to fulfill the book Welcome back to Sojourner Truth And that is the late, great Bob Marley's redemption song. I thought it was fitting as we remember uh, Randall Robinson, now the late great Randall Robinson, who joined the ancestor world on March 24th of 2023. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you've missed any part of this hour, from 10 this morning for 90 days after that, just go to kpfk.org, scroll down to archives, click on Sojourner Truth. You'll be able to hear the show in its entirety, and you can subscribe for a free podcast. And if you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there, our handle on Instagram and Twitter, at So True Radio, and our website. You can check it out on at sotrueradio.org. And we are heard worldwide and nationwide on SoundCloud. And today we'd like to give a shout out in the United States to our SoundCloud listeners in Virginia, where Randall Robinson <clears throat> was born. And internationally, we would like to give a shout out to our listeners in South Africa, a nod to, to the work that Randall Robinson that we are remembering today uh, did to help bring about the end of apartheid and the freeing of Nelson Mandela, who went on to become the first black president of South Africa. Uh, we are sharing with you today uh, the words, the voice of Randall Robinson's speeches that are rarely uh, heard, uh, where he talks about, uh, he gives some sharp analysis on the, which you heard earlier, on black history or the lack of teaching of black history in the world, how much we don't know, and basically how we need to step it up a notch and likely get a bit a lot more militant. He talked about he thinks the university campuses are too quiet these days. Well, some may not agree with that. But let us go now uh, to another clip. Uh, from Randall Robinson, where he's talking now about Haiti, about the space between Af the African-American community and the Haitian community, and about the debt we all owe to Haiti. Let's go to that clip now. One of the problems we need to discuss tonight a bit, and I'm going to be brief, you all have been terribly patient, is this space between the African-American community and the Haitian community. This space that is born of a kind of cultivated ignorance. This space that was intended to do what it has done. 
this space that has been a part of the way this nation and the Western world have now for over 200 years punished Haiti for what it did and what it did for all of us. And so for me, Pierre, this work on Haiti is one small African's way of trying to repay Haiti for what it did for us. We are in Haiti's debt. We would not be anything close to free were it not for Haiti. One of the problems that is deadly to Americans, particularly in a democracy, because democracy is rooted in an enlightened citizenry. When the citizenry knows little, the democracy becomes perfunctory. I mean, it doesn't really mean anything. Voting becomes an exercise. But when one doesn't know what one is voting for or voting against, uh, one is just uh, performing. It doesn't mean anything. And Americans only understand generally how to read and uh, ingest information in the present. They um, only learn things that are generally out of any context. And so they try to understand the violence in the Middle East without understanding anything about the Balfour Declaration or anything about 1948 or anything about why the Palestinians are disturbed or anything about prices that people have paid. We, 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 we look at Iraq without understanding that these people have a 6,000-year-old civilization, that they taught the world to read and write, that they know who they are. There are no more malleable people in the world than people who have been stripped of the story of themselves. If your memory can be taken, you can be completely controlled. You are a clear and empty vessel into which anyone can pour anything anyone wants to pour. But if Haiti ever committed an unpardonable sin in the West, it was the sin of remembering itself. What is so blessedly wonderful about Haitians? No matter how poor they are, they know who they are. They knew what they did and why they did it. And they have been penalized for that again and again. The Haitians have been penalized. You know, it's really emotional <clears throat> listening uh, to those words of Randall Robinson, knowing all the suffering going on on the ground in Haiti today and the price that Haiti has played for its successful revolution in 1804 
that led the way to the ending of slavery throughout the Americas and the Haitians also helped uh, Bolivar with the liberation of Latin America and the colonial powers have never forgiven, forgiven Haiti. And Randall Robinson uh, knew that very, very deeply. He makes reference to the Balfour uh, Declaration in relation to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. If those of you who are students out there, if you don't know what that is, please look it up. The Balfour uh, Declaration and also look up the Nakba that happened in 1948 uh, when uh, Palestinians were basically expelled uh, from their homeland. A lot of analysis here, a lot we learned from uh, Randall Robinson, by the way, uh, several, he wrote several books, including a memoir uh, entitled Defending the Spirit of Black Life in America. He all his best known work is likely the debt, what America owes to blacks, in which he argued for reparations uh, way before, this was back in 2000. Uh, there was not a lot of talk about reparations back then. And he also wrote The Reckoning, What Blacks Owe to Each Other. And then in 2004, he wrote Quitting America. And that had to do with him deciding to leave the United States and go live in uh, St. Kitts in the Caribbean. Uh, so I, I do want to, you to hear as much of Randall Robinson as possible. So we're now going to go to Randall Robinson, giving us some of the inside story of that 2004 coup against Haiti's first democratically elected president, um, which basically the situation today in Haiti a result of that coup and fallout from it. Let us go now to Randall Robinson. Colin Powell made a statement in April, this April. He said that he had been criticized fiercely for going into Haiti, but that a bloodbath was about to take place, Pierre, that um, a civil war was in the offing, and he sent a plane in to bring Aristide out, and Aristide agreed, and he came out, and we spared the country a bloodbath. Donald Rumsfeld said that when the plane landed in, in Antigua for refueling, that if Aristide had a problem about anything, he would have said something to his Caribbean colleagues in Antigua when he was there. Colin Powell had lied. Donald Rumsfeld had lied. First, the army that was making the civil war that uh, Powell was trying to avoid was an army that was armed by the United States an army that was equipped by the United States, an army that was trained by American special forces in the Dominican Republic. And one might safely assume that if we financed it, that if we armed it, that if we equipped it, if we trained it, then we directed it. For we would not have given all of that to any group 
that could do anything it wanted to do at any time. And what was so clear throughout all of this, that once the rebels, and that's too nice a term for these thugs who had a long string of killings to their names, that once they crossed the border into Haiti in February of 2004, all George Bush had to say, all Colin Powell had to say, all Condoleezza Rice had to say to them was stop. They would have stopped immediately, but they never said that, which means that they approved what they were doing. They did not go west and south to Port-au-Prince. They went north away from Port-au-Prince. There were only 200 of them. The one million plus people living in Port-au-Prince were hostile to them. They could not possibly have overrun the capital. Aristide knew exactly where they were. His helicopter pilot had flown reconnaissance and watched them as they made their stops around the country, killing people with their new American weapons, killing policemen who had no useful weapons because of the embargo imposed by President Clinton and not lifted by George Bush. And so Powell lied by omission. And so that was the context in late February that we were all frightened, particularly people who know the Aristides, who know their children, who know what decent people they were and what they tried to do. Aristide, in a country where 70% of the people are peasant farmers, who make less than $225 a year, enraged the white elites by saying that the minimum wage should be raised to $2 a day. Aristide, who was born poor and black, who has on his birth certificate Creole words that say people from the outside, that say peasant. Aristide said, this has to be removed from the birth certificates. All Haitians ought to have the same birth certificate, notwithstanding race and class. This enraged the white elites, becoming so enraged that they published on the internet racist depictions of the president, installing cameras in his bathroom, publishing pictures on the internet of the president nude in his home. That's how vicious it was. All of which our country knew about and supported. And Randall Robinson telling it like it is. A lot of people are still confused about what happened in 2004 that happened to be the anniversary of the Haitian revolution that took place and ended in 
to uh, 1804. This was 2004, 200 years later. The U.S. makes a move against Jean Breton Aristide, the first democratically elected president of Haiti. Aristide, uh, it was only uh, last year that in an expose of the New York Times that the mainstream media um, uh, admitted and owned that part of the reason, a major reason why President Aristide was removed was because he was demanding restitution and reparations from France because France had forced Haiti to pay for the cost of the Haitian Revolution and also for the loss of their enslaved uh, people, if you would believe this. And Haiti continued to pay that until after World War II. So when the earthquake happened in Haiti, the major earthquake happened in Haiti, and people saw the poverty in Haiti and couldn't understand it, understand that Haiti had been bled dry by France. Also, by banks like Citibank in the United States that had drained uh, Haiti's uh, coffers. And Randall Robinson, he is telling the story uh, as it is. Let us hear more now, more detail about, little known detail about what happened in that U.S. back coup against President Aristide in Haiti. Let's go to that clip now. Tavis Mali had been working with my wife to put together a trip to Haiti. And so he had booked um, a charter. The idea was that he was going to fly down the morning of Sunday, the 29th of February. Uh, Cornell West, Tom Joyner were to go with him. My wife Hazel had been working with Mildred Aristide to get all the T's crossed and all the I's dotted. Everything was in place. The Aristides didn't stay Saturday night of the 28th of February downtown in the palace where they had an apartment. As usual, they went home to Tabar outside the capital in a less well-defended place. No millions to surround them there as they would have been protected in Port-au-Prince. And they weren't concerned because they knew where the so-called rebels were. They had bivouacked in Ghanaive, 100 kilometers to the north, and stayed there. It was clear that somebody had ordered them to stay away from Port-au-Prince. I called the house at about 11 o'clock that night. May I speak to the president? The phone was answered by an American voice. I knew something was wrong. I had never heard an American male voice or any other kind of voice, female or whatever, answer the phone in the Aristides' home. The president is not here. May I speak to Madame Aristide? She is not here. When will they be returning? I don't know. The connection was severed. The outside world had been cut off from the Aristides. The president, I learned later, was at home all this time. And so some time went by. And then Tavis called my wife. 
And he said, the trip is off. And Hazel said, oh my God, don't tell me something has happened to them. And she said, uh, he said, no, that's not it. I just got a call from Ron Dellums, your mayor. Ron had been brought on to the Haiti team by my wife to represent the interest of Haiti to the Congress and to the administration. And then Tavis said that Ron said that he had just talked to Secretary of State Colin Powell. And the Secretary asked former Congressman Dellums to tell Aristide that the leader of the rebels, Guy Philippe, who had been trained in Ecuador by the CIA, was coming to Port-au-Prince on Sunday the 29th to kill President Aristide. And then he said further, and also tell President Aristide that the United States will do nothing to defend him. This was designed to cause the president to flee. But he didn't flee. He knew where Guy Philippe was, and he knew where the rebels were. And they stayed right there in Tabar that night. At about 3.30 in the morning, Franz Gabriel, a former member of the U.S. 1st Cavalry Division, former American sergeant in the U.S. Army, a Haitian, 60 years old, his statement is in the book, got a call in his home in Petionville from one of the security people at the home saying, come quick, something strange is going on here. He got in his car and drove 30 minutes to the Aristides home. He walked into the home and the president was in the middle of the living room, standing. President Aristide said, pressure is coming from every direction. It is coming from everywhere. And before Franz Gabriel could elicit from him an elaboration, the yard lit up with tracer lights from weapons that were crisscrossing in the yard. American soldiers had arrived in Chevy Suburbans and taken up positions on the wall that surrounded the house. And then into the yard pulled the last Chevy Suburban that had in it U.S. Special Forces soldiers in full battle gear and Luis Moreno from the American Embassy who stepped into the living room and told the president, I was here when you came back in 94. I'm here to take you out tonight. The president would later say there, was too, there were too many of them. There was nothing that I could do. They put him in the Chevy Suburban with his wife, Mildred, abducting not only him, but his American-born wife, probably committing a number of felonies, if not in his case, certainly in hers, and took them out through the gate with the rest of the Chevy Suburbans, with the rest of the Special Forces soldiers, drove to the airport where there was a large white jumbo jet, unmarked, only a U.S. flag on the tail assembly. 
Moreno gets out, goes around to the Aristide's door, opens the door and says two words, let's go. Two words, let's go. Some of you may be hearing for the first time this detail, the inside story of the kidnapping of Jean-Bertrand Aristide uh, by the United States and taken out of Haiti. Uh, I don't. I want you to hear more the rest of this story. So let's quickly go now to hear more from Randall Robinson about the U.S. back coup and kidnapping of President Aristide in 2004. The window shades were all drawn. The president and the Americans took off, but not before asking Franz Gabriel who left the house with them. Was he going with them? And Franz says, I am going to stay with my president. And he was told by the American officer who was in charge, well, you're going to end up in a French prison camp if you do. He said, I am going to stay with my president. The plane took off and it landed in Antigua which is very close to where I live in St. Kitts. We have a lot of friends in Antigua. Landed there five or six in the morning. Parked in a remote spot on the tarmac. Shades drawn. Mildred Aristide asked, may I raise the shades? No, you may not. Where are we? I'm not authorized to tell you. Where are we being taken? I'm not authorized to tell you. Customs officials from Antigua were not allowed to go on to the plane. The two customs declarations are published in the book. One comports with the description of Franz Gabriel's that there were 50 people on the plane. Our soldiers, the Steel Foundation people, the Aristides, and the crew. Another says there were no people on the plane. In any case, the Antiguans could never check that, because they were never allowed to look into the plane that was sitting on their own soil. The plane took off and flew to the South Atlantic, to the Ascension Island. It's a little place that's owned by the Brits used for refueling, largely military planes of the Western powers. Landed, where are we? We're not allowed to tell you. Where are we going? We're not allowed to tell you. The Aristides were not told where they were being taken until they were landing in the Central African Republic. He called me on Monday when he was finally given access to a phone. He said to me, it's a coup, Randall. It's a coup. We thought that they had been taken there to die. Central African Republic was a military dictatorship. Their democracy had been overthrown by a general named Bozizi, who had made himself president. This was where they took Aristide. 
Any number of Caribbean governments would have welcomed them, but the U.S. would not allow it. Two weeks after they arrived, two weeks after they had landed and were not told that there's a fatal strand of malaria in the Central African Republic, two weeks after they had been offered no medication by either the Americans, the French, or the president of the country, two weeks after they had stayed in the same clothes they had been taken from their home in. Maxine Waters and I chartered a plane. No visas, no permissions, no anything to fly to the Central African Republic to rescue our friends. We took with us Sharon Hay Webster, parliamentarian from Jamaica, who was carrying a letter from Prime Minister P.J. Patterson saying that the Aristides would enjoy are being offered temporary asylum in Jamaica. I might add parenthetically here that once we got them away and got them to Jamaica, we had a conference call one night with Charlie Rangel and John Conyers and Maxine Waters and myself and Prime Minister Patterson who told us that he had been threatened by Condoleezza Rice. She told him, if anything happens to a single American occupation soldier in Haiti, that the United States would hold Jamaica responsible. Unbelievable pressure on the island nation of Jamaica for offering and giving asylum to President Aristide. And uh, kudos to Congresswoman Maxine Waters and Randall Robinson um, many of us know that their action, getting him out of the Central African Republic, likely saved the life of President Aristide and his wife, Mildred Aristide. Uh, looking at the time here, getting close to the top of the hour where we're remembering uh, Randall Robinson, who died on March 24th, 2023, let us hear one more clip. Uh, from Randall Robinson, um, a bit more about the coup against uh, Aristide, but also more of his sharp analysis. Let us go now to the voice of Randall Robinson. The Bush administration did this thing in several ways. In 2003, they blocked $146 million in inter-American bank, inter-American development bank loans. Things like clean drinking water, and education and health and all of that, blocked all of that. They, they cut the Haitians' budget in half. And then they had their surrogates invaded. And then they abducted the president and overthrew the democracy themselves. And they did this out of a close sympathy with the elites who had been begging the Americans to invade to get rid of Aristide. And so in the last analysis, this is a question of democracy. The hypocrisy can no longer be born. 
If Haiti is to be democratic, it will always elect an Aristide. He hadn't asked for terribly much. He had said to his people with pride that we love who we are. We don't need to continue to go to the Dominican Republic and cut sugarcane for nothing. We can stay home and try to make our way. We can try to resist structural adjustment. We can try to own ourselves. We must learn to go from election to election to election so that democracy becomes a habit. And in the last analysis, my pledge to you is only that I will try to move you from misery to poverty with dignity. That's all, he asked. But that was too much for America. It was too much for the white elites. And we were too ill-informed to know what was going on. My friend said, Randall, you've just got to let it go. As people used to ask me when we worked on South Africa, why do you care so much about South Africa? And I would say, I am a South African. Why do you get yourself arrested at the Nigerian embassy? I am a Nigerian. Why do you give trouble for the Ethiopians? Because I am an Ethiopian. And so, I think I know why the history of Haiti has been hidden from us. For it is a tonic that we need to take. In August of 1791, 40,000 enslaved Haitians revolted. And they fought for 12 and a half years they lost 150,000 lives. Their leader, Toussaint Louverture, that C.L.R. James says, with the possible exception of Napoleon, was the greatest single human being of his time, had been kidnapped like Aristide and taken to freeze to death in the Jura Mountains before he could see the Republic that he had helped create it born in January of 1804. The republic that France immediately tried to crush, extracting reparations from the winner. The republic that the US embargoed, the republic that the Catholic Church embargoed. The West attempting to punish these people for having the temerity to defeat the best that Europe could send against them. I join Randall Robinson in saying we're not going to let go. One of the reasons I focus so much on Haiti. And we also have to understand the reason and can now that the United States and their allies, the so-named core group, have blocked a Haitian-led solution to the crisis facing Haiti today. They don't ever want to see someone like a Jean-Bertrand Aristide as president of Haiti. They want only leaders of Haiti 
that they can manipulate and control. We are lifting up Randall Robinson. The world lost him on March 24th. He worked tirelessly for the movement for democracy on the ground in Haiti, just as he did work tirelessly to end apartheid in South Africa. But we are out of time now. We are going to have to leave it today's show produced by me. That's Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank Jose Benavides, our assistant producer today. I'd like to thank the board up. Uh, for today's show. We also want to thank Pierre Leboisier for his tireless work on behalf of the Movement for Democracy in Haiti. And we also want to thank Marcus Books uh, for them so long ago making this sound available to you, the Sojourner Truth listener. If you would like a copy of today's show, please contact the Pacifica Radio Archives at 1-800-735-0230 or go online to the Pacifica Radio Archives.org. Uh, Stay tuned for more programming on your station, your local station. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. And remember, please stay well and safe. Thank you.